0: Okay, so let's move on. This was gonna be my final slide. And I thought, no, this needs to be the first slide. This is my dear friend, Arnie Schaefer. Arnie is a Jew, he's reformed, if you know what that means. And he worked in R&D at Phillips with me, and you wouldn't believe it now, but we used to go out every noon and jog in Osage County, Oklahoma. And we're jogging one day, and we're talking about belief in science. And Arnie came up with a statement that I think summarizes it really well, and that's it. You don't have to be schizophrenic to be a scientist and a believer, but it helps. Now, what did Arnie mean by that? Does that that resonate with anyone? Um, and, And It resonates with me because you really, if you're a scientist and a believer, You live in two worlds. You live in this world over here where you're doing science. Let me tell you, you don't take anything by faith. You know, you test everything. And, uh, you know, I always find it interesting when Josh talks about how terrible it is to be cynical. I tell people I was paid to be cynical. You know, for us, research was an expensive endeavor. It costs a lot of money to do research in an industrial setting. You know, uh, know, 20 years ago, I was talking to a friend from Exxon. He said we estimate it takes about a million dollars a year to support one scientist. That's the equipment, real estate, a lab tech, and and that was 20 years ago, million a year. So it's expensive business. So we were always, if we're going to, you know, you want to do this, well, let's let's look and find out. If there's anything that'll tell us it's not gonna work, we wanna do that first. And again, everything is tested, everything is held up to scrutiny. Whereas in religion, in the supernatural world, it's a different world. You know, if you look, and I'm sorry I didn't look, uh, but in, in one of the temptation accounts, I'm convinced, you know, How does Satan begin his temptation? I think in one of them it's all three and some it's just two. He says, If you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. Here's the one one man who could put God to the test, who could say, If I really am the Son of God, I can turn these stones into bread and I'll know. But he resists that temptation. He does not put God to the test. To me... And maybe it's because I'm a scientist. I, that's where I think the temptation for Jesus was. Was rather than take God on faith and accept Him like we have to on faith, Satan said, you yeah, turn those, know, turn those stones into bread, and then you'll know. Or be my servant, and you'll control everything, and then you'll know that you have the power. But Jesus refuses to do that. And again, so like I said, for a scientist, you kind of live in two worlds. And it's not terribly, but it, sometimes it's difficult. Anybody, is that, am I off base there? Reaction. Okay. And so as, I, as, as, you, as I've tried to deal with this over the years, I've come up with kind of a way to help, help things make sense to me. And again, this is not the scientific method, but we'll get there eventually. Georgia. yeah. What book is it where it says, test God, give, give up your, and see if he doesn't return, and there is is a way of testing your faith, I think in certain. Not in the hard return that you get in a yeah. scientific experiment, but... Yeah, yeah, uh, there may be. I haven't found it. <laughs> anyway, so how, how do I make sense of the world? I'm a believer that there's one God who's the source of all truth, In the physical world and in the supernatural world. There's one author of truth that truth from one person from one God will not disagree with itself I believe. How does it make itself known? In the natural world we see phenomena. Uh, I take this pen and pretty much every time I, not pretty much, every time I let it go (laughs) it falls. I can observe that phenomena and I, and I can understand something about nature. In, in, the, in the spiritual world, there's revelation. And you know, as when Jason started off, he read from Psalms 19. Some of that revelation tells us something about God, about His ordinance, about His nature. So we see, that's how God, you where know, we're, the physical world is seeing itself in phenomena. The spiritual world, I believe, through revelation. Now, what happens? Well, as a scientist, I, I was able to see that pinfall. I observed it, okay? When, when those revela- that revelation is made to a human, that human has, will take it, he might write it down, he might remember it and write it down later, he might pass it on to his children, as oral tradition, but there's a transmission that occurs of, of that, just like there's observation of phenomena. And the result of that on the physical world, we get data. You know, again, every, every data point I have for dropping pens says they fall. So that's pretty consistent. In Revelation, we get a sacred text or sacred teachings of some kind. So, what happens now? Well, we're going to interpret both of those things. As a scientist, you know, everybody knew that pencils fall. But Isaac Newton observed closely enough and was brilliant enough to understand that and turn it into the, the gravitational law. And so when he did that, he came up with a theory. And then when we do that with a sacred text, we come up with a doctrine. And again, that's kind of how I make sense of the world. It may not work for you, you may not need it, but I need that framework for me to kind of get through the world. Now why are those why are those boxes in red? Subjective. Ah, there's there are people like Eric here who are trying to interpret the text. And he may get it wrong sometime. Not everybody understands it like I do. And of course I'm right. I wouldn't be wrong on purpose, so I must be right, right? So Anyway, we, we all do interpretation. And, and we interpret data. There have been a lot of cases in science where people did really poor interpretation of data. came okay, but with, with some really bad theories. they are hoaxes, there, you've heard of the Piltdown Man. whose fossil remains discovered in England. Everybody was so excited and finally somebody confessed they would got bones from all these different species and thrown them together. It was total hoax. So, so we, you know, theory and doctrine are important. Uh, they're not to be scoffed at, but they're the they're the result of human intervention. And as such, they're fallible. We are. So, yeah, that's kind of how I make sense of the world. So, let's kind of move over to scientific method. We need to get some definitions. I also used to debate in high school. Definitions are important. So that's the easiest place to win or lose a debate, is sucker somebody in on a bad definition. Anyway, science, and and these come from a reference I'm gonna give you later, it has two aspects. It's a body of knowledge. We study science, right? It's also an activity, it's what I did for 30 years. Sometimes good, sometimes kind of so-so. So it's two things, it's both that body of knowledge and the practice that generates it. Now, religion. This is a little tougher. And uh, the, the person I used for this reference he, he identified three things. He said first, there's religious practice. You're participating in a religious practice right now. You came to church this morning, you observed a practice, you took communion. That's part of religion. And we don't have, Lauren's not here, is she? Uh, she could tell us about theology. And theology is kind of the closest of these to science. It's, it's the rational study of God. And again, like science, it's, it's two things. It's what she does at work. And it's the product of that work. So, again, the study and the, the resulting body of knowledge comes from it. Faith is a, is a belief system of arriving at some knowledge claim that we believe God exists. And these three sort of all get tied up together. It's just, it's, it's sort of silly to try to separate them because none of these, I believe, are independent. They're not independent of me. They all impact each other, but those are kind of three different things that this one uh, historian of science will look at identified. So, how does science, we're, kind of, we're getting towards the scientific method, we're getting there. How do they interact? First, there's a war, what's called the warfare model. These guys are always at odds. And we, we heard about that in our class. You know, for a lot of us, that's the way we were brought up. <coughs> uh, the separate realms model uh, that here's science, here's religion, and, and they don't mix too well. And then as we've gone to a more postmodern world, we have some different models where they kind of get mixed up. So, anyway, those are three models. Uh, let's talk about. Uh, science and religion have conflicted in the past. We all think of Galileo. But here's something I found interesting. When first, scientists first started pulling all the air out of a vessel to create a vacuum, they said there's nothing in there. And the theologians said, does that mean there's an area of space without God? A place where God doesn't exist. We think that's kind of silly now, but it was a pretty serious issue in the Middle Ages. lightning. Lightning rods. Lightning was controlled by the prince of the powers of the air. And we couldn't do anything until lightning struck this little church in Brescia, Italy where they had 200,000 pounds of gunpowder stored. Uh, shortly after that event, churches started putting lightning rods up. Go figure, right? Uh, here's one. There were people who believed it was, that woman. Part of, part of woman's punishment from the garden was what? Pain in childbirth. Don't go giving her anesthetics. That's God's will. And uh, fortunately, uh, we've gotten past that, and someone even pointed out, you know, God put Adam to sleep when he put the rib out. So why, you know, <laughs> you know, if, if he put Adam in a deep sleep, let's, let's at least give that benefit to ladies. Room, maybe. So anyway, but, but, but again, this was something people, and, and the next one is even more ridiculous when uh, the smallpox vaccination was, was developed, you know, there are there religious people, well-meaning, who said that smallpox is, is a judgment from God. They're getting what they deserve. You know, you don't need, you know, to avert it is to provoke him more. Yes? That's a recent one, too, about AIDS. Yeah, that's true, yeah, that AIDS is a judgment from God. Uh, anyway, so these, these conflicts have been around for a while. and the warfare model, and th- this is uh, again, I'm going to give you the source for a all of this a little later. Uh, the historians I've read believe it's primarily due to these two men. This first big John William Draper's book went through fifty printings in ten languages. and more than it's real interesting, more than a book about science and religion. It's a book about Catholicism and religion. He was a virulent anti-Catholic. And so this book, and, and Andrew, Dick, Andrew Dickinson White's book wasn't quite as widespread, but it, it got similar distribution. And both of these men wrote, and, and if you go back and look, they used quotations out of context to make mostly old Catholic uh, theologians say things they really didn't mean. But this set off this war. If you think about it, this is about the time of the rise of fundamentalism in America, early 1900s, publishing of the book The Fundamentals. So, anyway, this is kind of what set that war up. And it's interesting that if you look outside the English-speaking world, this war didn't occur. So, that's kind of how we got started on this strange warfare model. And I want to go back to Augustine... And mention some things. Again, we're going to get to the scientific method <laughs> eventually. So, St. Augustine had several core beliefs. One is kind of what I put up there with that big oval the unity of truth. That there's one author of truth, and it's, as such, it's going it's to be consistent. And he said there, there are two books we have the book of Scripture and the book of nature that we both have to read. And that both of those books, kind of again like in my diagram, we interpret both those books. Uh, I, know I My experience growing up in the church is I had people say, we don't interpret the Bible, we just read it. Do what it says. Well, that's kind of a nice thing to say, but it doesn't mean anything. We all interpret the Bible. Okay? Okay. And he said, when we're looking at religion versus science and philosophy, religion has primacy, but he said, scientific knowledge is a handmaiden. It should help us understand religion and things. So, a couple more things. He, he said, passages have several meanings. Literal, allegorical, moral, analogical, whatever. But if Lauren were here, she could tell you what all those mean. But I can't. When he looked at Genesis, he, his literal interpretation of Genesis did not have a six day creation, six literal day creation. But it was his, quote, literal interpretation a little differently. And this is really important, I think, the doctrine of accommodation. And he said, when these writers wrote, their language accommodated the knowledge of the people they're writing to. What if God had revealed to Moses uh, DNA sequencing and? Would anybody have understood that if Moses wrote about DNA and things? so the language of the of the Scripture is written to accommodate the understanding of people as they read and the interpretation of Scripture of the world requires assiduous exercise of reason. is not simple. Uh, sometimes I worry when, I, when I'm an amateur. People like Lauren, I keep talking about Lauren, she's not here. She's a professional in terms of studying theology. And I'm glad she's not here, kind of, because when I I talk in front of somebody who's really studied theology, I think, they're probably sitting there thinking, what is he doing up there? He doesn't know squat. But for whatever reason, I'm here. So, okay. Uh, Now, notice this, because interpretation is difficult, explanations should be only held provisionally. We need to, you know, realize this is this is my interpretation. Uh, okay, go ahead, it says our interpretations must be informed by the current state of scientific or other knowledge. So, you know, the world we live in is gonna influence our interpretation. And that's a little bit scary to me. But if you think about it, back in the 1950s, which for the Church of the Christ, was one of the most periods of most rapid growth. We kind of came across the tracks, got respectable from being kind of rural, un- educated hicks. But what did we think about women back then? How were women? Not too well, right? And what's happened, I think, is, is we've seen, as, as our, this current state of other knowledge has changed, we've gone back and taken another look at what women ought to be doing and how how women ought to be treated. And so we've kinda used this principle of Augustine's to say we're gonna let our interpretation be influenced by that knowledge. In this case, uh, social knowledge. Uh, And finally, this is I think my last Augustine or Augustine, whichever you prefer. Failure to conform interpretations to certain knowledge gained from other sources, such as the book of nature, can opens the interpreter and Christianity as a whole to ridicule of, for being unlearned. Learned. So, uh, you know, if, realize that if, you know, you can say God wrote it, I believe it, and that settles it, that's fine but you're going to, you know, some people are going to look at you and look at and may look at the whole church and say these people are wackos. And it's okay to be a wacko sometimes but anyway just keep we need to keep that in mind all right finally the scientific method what is it it's just a method to look at as far as I can say and understand the natural world uh, it works pretty well for for that but it's also important it makes no claim to address the supernatural you don't I, in my opinion you don't hear good scientists saying I can prove there's no God, because they realize that that's outside the realm of what they do. Science doesn't, you know. I was used a kid. Had a friend who was a geophysicist for for my company, and geophysicists are the guys who take all seismic data and get these squiggly lines on a piece of paper, and they say we're going to spend five million dollars and drill a hole there. And it looks, I look at piece of paper and over here, it looks just like that over here. Uh, matter of fact, he used to tell the joke of, a guy came down and he was, came to R&D and he said, uh, he went to an engineer like Jerry and he said, uh, what's two and two, two plus two? Jerry said, well, let me think a minute." He said, it's approximately four. He said, how many, how, how close do you want it? And he went to a mathematician. He said, what is two plus two? He said, it's precisely, it's exactly four. I you went know, to a geophysicist, said, what's two plus two? The geophysicist kind of looked around and said, come in. Shut the door and said, what do you want it to be? <laughs> <laughs> so that's, the, that's, my, that's my impression of geophysicists. Again, they're incredible people, but again, they, they say drill a hole there, and if it's a dry hole, that's $5 million down the drain. So you have to kind of be ridden to stand up and roll the dice. Anyway, scientific method. What are the, the bases, basic assumptions? These are three I came up with, there may be others. Uh, first, natural events have natural causes. Okay. Again, when I dropped this pencil, I don't believe it was God intervening to do this. I believe that there's a natural cause behind that. And if we can use evidence from the natural world to learn about those causes. I don't, I don't believe I have to go to the Bible to understand why a pencil drops. And finally, this is important, there are consistencies in the causes that operate in the natural world. In other words, if I do an experiment, <clears throat> if I drop this pencil here, I can go to New York City and drop it, it'll drop again. And that's, uh, and that's reproducibility is what the scientific term. There was a great experiment in, the I think, the 30s where Enrico Fermi was in Italy. They were looking at neutron uh, decay and, and they were bombarding species with neutrons. And they got these results. They sent them to their colleagues in America and they tried to reproduce, they reproduced, got totally different results. And so Fermi did what any good scientist does he jumped on his graduate students, <laughs> free labor, slave labor. Turns out they moved the experiment. The reason they came out different. Is because in Italy they had done the experiment on a marble table. In the United States, they had done the experiment on a wooden table. And the wood, the protons in the wood interact stronger with the neutrons. It totally changed the results. But when they finally got to it, they said, yeah, it is consistent. That's a lot of a lot of hassle of science. It's, it's not always it's hard to get that reproducibility sometimes. Anyway, so those are kind of are there other scientists or any other things you ought to add, Rodney? I would say randomness, too, because there's a lot of randomness. Oh, yeah, that's right. There is randomness. Uh, yeah, and that's one of the first, first things you learn is you don't do an experiment once. If you really want to trust it, you do it several times, and you're never going to get the same answer, usually. you'll get. Hopefully, they'll be close. And occasionally, even if you're doing it right, occasionally, there'll be an outlier. So... There's there's consistency, but there's also random variation. There's also an unknown factor. Your John, pitsels, Go ahead. Your pinsel's dropped. Einstein come back to me. No, 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 it's the thing that it attracts it. It's the only place We may We may talk about that day today. We'll see if I have time. John? Uh, a philosophical idea. Yeah. Objective truth. It's not on a slide. Next week. Next week, when we talk about postmodernity. <laughs> we will talk about objective truth. <laughs> Yeah, um, I've heard some critique recently of uh, how we talk about the scientific method, mm-hmm. um, and I think it's because if you look at some disciplines in science, and I'm a mathematician, so I'm, I'm talking. about... Oh, you're you're never wrong. You got you guys have no no error, no statistical error. We don't deal with evidence, right? Right. We proof, yeah. Right? It's either true or it's not true. Yeah. But in science, in some branches like evolutionary biology. Or, or the geosciences, mm-hmm. you don't get to run experiments. Right. Right. Yeah. You can't reproduce data. There's only one Earth. You can't. There's not a. There's not a control Earth where you can't have it without doing that. And so, I, I think sometimes this framing yeah. of the scientific method, yeah, leads us to doubt certain fields of science because they don't have that reproducibility. Very good point. Because and they have and have ways of making yeah, synthesis. yeah, yeah. They're, they're. T- you can't always do the experiments you want to do. Again. For climate change, it would be wonderful if there were a second Earth where no industrial development had occurred and we could see what its climate was like versus what this, is. but we can't, there's not one. I don't, I wonder if there could be one on the other side of the sun when I was real little. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I don't think there is. But, but that's where what we do, And unless you climate change example, The, 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 the big system, we can't do experiments on the big system, but we can do experiments on the phenomena that occur in that system on a smaller scale. We can understand the absorption of infrared light of carbon dioxide or methane. And what we do is we can do all those things and we go to our mathematical friends and we build mathematical models. And this, I mean, there are observational things you can do as well. But you build a model, and you say, does it reproduce what I see? And Sometimes it does. <laughs> but, and, and if you get a bunch of models that kind of reproduce, you start to think, well, must, there must, I must have some confidence in that. It, descri- it describes the real world, and we'll talk next week about realism and instrumentalism, and that's, that's what we're talking about here. So, you know, we, and the nice thing about mathematical models is you can turn things off. If you look at the, the International Panel on Climate Change, so much for that, they, uh, they have a model, they take all these model runs. This is time, this is temperature, that should be, and what you see, you, know, you see this great rise in temperature in the, in the industrial age. We well, can take that same model, now you can turn the industrial age off. You can say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take my own model and not emit CO2. And what you see is it looks like that. And that tells you, gee, this may be, this, this appears to be what's causing climate change. So anyway, I don't, I don't wanna get into that. But, but that, that, that is, that's, that's one of the frustrations is when you look at, especially with big systems, you can't do the experiments you wanna do. But again, if you break that system, my, my belief is you break that system into small parts, you can't experiment with those and understand them. Okay, where are we? Okay. Okay, here's kind of, you'll find different formulations but this is kind of the basic thing. If you have a question, you do some experiments, you come up with a hypothesis, you make predictions, you experiment, see if it does it work. So let's look in the example. DNA. <clears throat> Back in the early 50s, we knew the chemical composition, we knew it had these four Amino acids. Uh, we knew that their structures. We knew it carried genetic information, but we didn't know how it was stored. How, how it was organized. So, Francis Crick, Crick and Watson. I guess we'll include Linus Pauling too. Said it had. They believed it had a helical structure. I think Pauling believed it had three strands rather than two. Anyway, so they made a prediction. They said if we take DNA, if we crystallize it. <coughs> We can put it in what's called an X-ray diffractometer that the X-rays diffract off of it. And it should have an X-shaped pattern. That's where Rosalind Franklin comes in now. You may have heard of Rosalind Franklin. Person didn't get any credit. (laughs) She crystallized the pure DNA and did the X-ray diffraction pattern. And there's our X. Ta-da! Okay. And so now, Mr. Watson sees that pattern. He sees it's a helix and he, they said let's put together a model that gives those results and there's the model that's pretty much universally accepted for DNA these days and extend that miles and miles and you got DNA so now uh, and here's uh, just the first paragraph of their letter to nature it's a two-page letter if, if you, can, you can get it on the internet it's, it's amazing it's an incredible discovery two pages that's it and notice his language, we wish to suggest a structure. Now, that brings to an impo- I think an important point. Did they prove the structure of DNA? Answer is no. They proved it is a structure that fits a diffraction pattern. But who's to say there are not other structures that would fit it just as well? And there's this great quotation by Einstein. He says, no amount of experimentation can ever prove me right, but a single experiment can prove me wrong. We always used to talk about doing one experiment too many. (laughs) And if you're a scientist, you may know that question too. You've done several experiments, and you think, man, I got this figured out. I know what's going on. Let's do this other one. You do this other one, and it's, you're, 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 Beautiful, elegant theory. is trash. It's the. So I've been there. <laughs> so, that and that, that's that's a part of all science. You know, all all that experiment can do. Again, and there were bunches of experiments. Took almost 15 years for the first person to come up with an experiment to test Einstein's theory of relativity. That's how far ahead he was. He's incredible. So, now. Here, there are no points on here, so I want you, what can't we investigate with the scientific method? Whether there's a God. God is not part, of, he, we can see things about, I think we can infer things about God from our universe, but we can't prove Him, we can't disprove Him. We can't answer some of the, the questions we, mu- we really want to answer. Why am I here? You know, that's kind of the biggest existential question for a lot of us. Why are we here? What's our purpose? You know, I don't think science has ever told me anything about, I mean, I love science. In terms of telling me why I'm here, I just come up with a big zero. Maybe I'm not a good scientist. But these existential questions, science, and again, I think if you're a good scientist, you, you recognize this and say, look, that's, that's not what I do. I can't answer that question for you. I can't tell you. Uh, maybe, maybe it can tell me why I have cancer, but I don't know that it can. Maybe, maybe I handled chemicals back in the lab when I was a, working for an oil company that caused that. But, you know, there are deep questions that I struggle with but science is not where I go to look for answers. I just, and again, that's a road that leads nowhere in my mind. Other things you can think of. Yes. More broadly, anything we can't currently measure, mm-hmm. we can't use the scientific method because some people postulate sort of emerging of the spiritual, physical world. Yeah. And we don't have instruments to measure into the spiritual world. Right. So stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I would add that can't, it, It's not just the non-existential things that we can't prove by science. It's also some of the things that are more scientific, like the origin of the Big Bang. How does yeah before yeah the origin of the first uh, red giant Yeah, yeah. Historical. Yeah, there, there are a lot of you know, and and again, if if you ask a cosmologist what was before the Big Bang, yeah. And interestingly enough, I don't know, uh, we may talk about this later, but does anybody know who first proposed the Big Bang Theory? <clears throat> it was a Belgian Catholic priest in 1947 who first said, this, I believe, is the way the world was made. Uh, and as we go back next week, we're going to see that this division between science and religion uh, is fairly a fairly new thing. So, Anyway. Uh, we find ourselves at least I find myself wanting to ask these existential questions and again science makes no pretension about answering but let me say a quick word about miracles <clears throat> because when we talk about science and things, <clears throat> miracles come out and uh, this is kind of the question do you believe in miracles today and before you answer my next question is what's a miracle how do we define a miracle? <laughs> when the impossible becomes possible? When the reader said when the impossible becomes possible, and and this is this is kind of a historic definition. That uh, the, the phrase they used in Latin in the Middle Ages was the cursus communis naturae, the common course of nature. <clears throat> that there's a common course nature takes, and we kind of phrase that as natural laws and when that common course of nature is broken that's a miracle now that's 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 what i use you can use whatever you want but based on that definition and again i'll probably upset some of you i don't believe in miracles because i've never seen one if uh we were to walk out and uh Rodney's in the parking lot and somehow there's a car hits him and he's lying over here and his head's lying over there <laughs> and Josh picks up his head and sticks it on and says in the name of Jesus Christ I heal you and Rodney stands up and says thank you I'm changing my theology right then but so what how, does, now how does God act? some people believe in a non-interventionist God and let me tell you I've been there if you've had cancer you've probably been there I think yes. that may be. Not an actual occurrence, but that's one way to look at them. I t- I tend uh, for instance, the resurrection. Is that a metaphor? Is it a miracle? is it real? I'm not, you know, that's something we can talk about, but that that's one way to look at them. So anyway, but we go from non-interventious God, a miraculous God, and that the God I come up with that hopefully is a, what we call providential. I believe that God acts today. I believe He's active. But I believe that He acts within the laws of nature. And again, that's largely large on experience. Again, I've never seen what I consider to be a miracle that again but don't be driven to think I believe in this non-interventionist God like I said there are bad days when I'm there I'll just tell you and uh, but anyway this idea of a providential God and if you don't tell you the theological reasons I believe that too which are kind of which Lauren would probably laugh at <laughs> but anyway I think it's important that we use precise language when we talk about miracles. Yes, Roger. A rabbi tell me one time that the Jews really don't have much of a problem with evolution, but they do have a problem with providence. Yeah, I believe that. Yeah, that's, that's, I'm gonna have to think about that. That's really, you give me something to think about this week. Did you hear that? that? The rabbi said they don't have a problem with miracles, they have a problem with providence. Yeah, Jewish faith can be interesting. So that's just about all I have to say George, from a reproducibility standpoint, Uh are you making the assumption that God is always the same at all times with all people? No. No. And that, I mean, that that, that to me is an interesting... I I am what's called a cessationist. I believe that miracles ceased uh, around the first century or so. And again, I have weird theological reasons for believing that as well, which I won't bore you with. But... uh, yeah, anyway, let me give you a really good resource. Uh, a lot of the material I used today came out, I don't know if you the Great Courses of Teaching Company. They have great college lectures that they record. This guy, Lawrence Principe, is outstanding. He's professor of history of science, he's a chemist, gotta be good at John Hopkins for all these awards. He has a, a 12 lecture series on science and religion. If you go on the teaching company site, it'll say it costs $90, but three weeks goes on sale for $12.95. <laughs> so that's important, but the important thing about teaching company is never ever pay full price. But there, it's a source of great lectures on a lot of different things. But, uh, and this this is Principe's lectures on science and religion, just a list of them. They're all out, they're really good lectures. Uh, if you're on the mailing list for this class, I'll have these slides sent out, and uh, anyway. They're very good lectures, uh, and he, he's a, they're, they're very much on a history basis, he's a historian. Okay, we're about done. My final word, Laurie Nettles' father-in-law was my chemistry professor as a freshman at Lipscomb in 91, 1968, and he was talking about belief and he said, really comes down, eternal dirt or eternal spirit, take your choice. And I'm not sure. I'm still not sure. I know everything that means. But it stayed with me. One of one of those options may explain everything, but only one gives us meaning, gives us purpose, gives us hope. So that's all I had. We'll see you next week. We'll talk about pre and post modernism and modernism in between. Thank you. Yes.
1: Yeah. Hey Daniel. Um,
0: well, this night, we're going to be doing the, the chorus Faithful. In-